friends, as Karen indicated, we're beginning a new series in the book of the prophet Isaiah this morning. Uh, I thought I'd take a few minutes now to give you a bit of an overview and some historical context to what's going on in Isaiah. Uh, The book begins with a city on its knees. Jerusalem, uh, God's pride and joy in the 8th century BC, we're in the 700s, uh, it's a shadow of its former self. It's harassed and pressured by more powerful neighbours like Assyria to the north and Syria and Israel to the near north, Egypt to the south and west. Uh, Remember how God had rescued his people out of Egypt. He brought them into the promised land with Moses. He gave them kings, but those glory days of David and Solomon are long gone. Uh, The kingdom is now divided into north and south. The people of Jerusalem in the south in Judah are far from God's plan for them. It's a place of wickedness and corruption, we hear. And God has a message for his city through the prophet Isaiah. It's a message of judgment and of hope. God is going to purify his city. He's going to bring judgment for all the wickedness of God's wayward people. And he brings a promise of a future ruler empowered by God's own spirit, who will be Emmanuel, God with us. But Jerusalem isn't the only city in God's sight. There's another city, a wicked, godless city that looms on the horizon in the shadows of history. Babel, Babylon. It's the the Bible's great symbol of human pride and oppression and opposition to God's rule. It's this city of pride and wickedness uh, which God is going to use to bring about his refining purposes for his holy city, Jerusalem. The spectre of Babylon looms through chapters 1 to 39 until eventually uh, in chapter 39, the end of the first half of the book, envoys from Babylon arrive in Jerusalem. King Hezekiah, the king of, of Judah at the time, naively shows them all the treasures of the city the silver, the gold, the precious spices, absolutely everything found in the treasury. And then we go into this intermission in Isaiah, a gap of several generations. And for us, that's going to be a gap of about four weeks as we do a different series on promoting the gospel before we resume with Isaiah. We resume in chapter 40 and we plunge back into God's plan to refine his holy city at a very different point. Babylon is no longer the looming spectre. Now it's the occupying superpower. Jerusalem is in exile. The city is desolate. The people are weeping by the rivers of Babylon. But we know that even this is in God's plan. Immediately God's message through, through Isaiah to the people is one of hope. Her hard service has been paid for. Her sin has been paid for, her hard service completed, and God is bringing about her restoration. Comfort, comfort my people, he says. God is bringing his people home to Jerusalem to show them that the exile was his refining, not his neglect. He's going to establish a new chapter of justice and righteousness for his city, Jerusalem. And in these chapters of restoration, the promised ruler again appears, now called the servant. The servant will take on the identity of Israel to restore Israel and to be a light to the nations. 
Somehow the servant will be rejected and be killed, yet will live again. And it's by belonging to him that God's people will be measured. Those who come to the water, who who receive the rule of the servant, will inherit God's kingdom in the renewed, perfected Jerusalem. But those who reject the servant uh, will be rejected by God and removed from the city. So friends, as we launch into the writings of the Prince of Prophets, we're going to see God's redemption uh, for his people. We'll see the God of redemption redeem. We'll see the God of justice judge. We'll see the city of God transformed. Let me pray for us as we hear our first reading in just a moment from Seeking. Let's pray. Lord our God, give us grace to hear and receive your word. And as we study through this book of Isaiah, help us to grasp your big purposes for your people, not only in the 8th century BC, but continuing to our day and beyond. And as we hear and listen to your word, Lord, would you help us to bring forth the fruit of your spirit through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Seeking is going to bring us our first reading from Isaiah 1. Good morning, everyone. A reading from the New International Version of the Bible, um, Isaiah chapter 1. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth. For the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its own owner's manger, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord, They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty has left to some survivors, we would have become like Sodom, would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. 
when you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend your press. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderous. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the mighty one of Israel declares, Ah, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your leaders as in days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness, but rebels and sinners will both be broken and those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will become tinder and his work a spark. Both were burned together with no one to quench the fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks King. Well, God has a problem. And not a little he'll get over it kind of problem. God has a big problem. Like, like a call it out publicly kind of problem. Because that's what we do when we have a problem, right? We call it out. Just this week, I saw posts on Facebook calling out the federal government for holding children in indefinite offshore detention and one calling out the Queensland government for not allowing two parents to see their newborn child while in hotel quarantine. When we see a problem, we take to social media, we post the offending link, we tell the world just how outrageous this whole situation is. And there are lots of outrageous situations. 
indefinite detention of asylum seekers, the lack of reconciliation with Indigenous peoples. Just this week, the Anglican Church released a report into the prevalence of domestic violence in our church communities. It's outrageous. But we bring these issues out into the open because that's far better than hiding them. Because we trust that if people are confronted with the truth, they will see the problem, there'll be enough public pressure and change will happen. Well, God has a problem. He's outraged and he's doing the same thing. He's bringing it out into the open, not on social media, but in his own godlike kind of way. He's telling the whole world, look at verse 2 there, Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. The Lord God has got something to say. So listen up, everybody. When God speaks, it's important and he wants his whole creation to hear. This morning, as we've said, we're starting a new series in Isaiah. I've already given you a little intro to the book. Isaiah is a prophet in Jerusalem, in the courts of the kings of Judah. That's, that's the southern part of the kingdom after the split. We're in the 700s BC. And we get this from the first verse that we heard read. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. We have archaeological evidence dating Hezekiah to around 700 BC. You can read more about those kings in the books of two kings from about, from about chapter 15 onwards. As we've said, in Isaiah's day, storm clouds are brewing on Judah's horizon. Powerful empires like Assyria are eyeing them off. But there are problems at home as well. And God speaks to his people through his prophet because he wants to see change. He wants to see change. So what's this problem? What is outraging the Lord? It's in verse 2. The Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. God's people, his own children, are worse than donkeys. Even a donkey knows the hand that feeds it. But God's people have no idea. They're in rebellion against the God who raised them. This is the heart of God's complaint. It's a cry of a parent for his child. He loves them, he cares for them and feeds them. He provides for them, he's given them land and made them a nation with identity and belonging. But they throw it in his face. In verse 4, they have forsaken the Lord, they have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. His people are rebels. Like a toddler throwing a tantrum, they've stormed out on their God. And the consequences are bad. Because the damage is threefold. It's self-destructive, it's devastating the vulnerable, and it's destroying their relationship with God. Firstly, their rebellion is self-destructive. No one likes to be beaten up. No one would choose that for themselves. 
except for Judah. They're getting beaten up by all the other nations around them, invaded, marauded, wounds and bruises and open sores. Their cities are burned and their fields are stripped. Only Jerusalem, Zion, is left. God's people have abandoned his protection and now they're left defenseless against their marauding neighbours. Their rebellion is self-destructive. And even then, though, God shows mercy. Verse 9, a verse that might be familiar to us from our Romans series we've just finished. It's quoted in Romans 9. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, those two ancient cities like uh, like the Voldemort and Mordor of the ancient world, these are synonymous with evil, these cities. So evil, God smote them with fire and brimstone. Judah would have been likewise destroyed if it weren't for God's mercy. He saves a remnant in Jerusalem, his city. Israel, the the people of Judah, are in outright rebellion against their God and they're destroying themselves. But the damage gets worse. Because secondly, their rebellion is bad news for the vulnerable. Look at verse 23. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. They've become like dross, we're told. In ancient societies where men had economic and social privileges not afforded to women and children, those without a man in their immediate family were uh, systemically vulnerable. The fatherless and widows were vulnerable. And so God's law tells his people, Deuteronomy 27, 19, Cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow. Because, also in Deuteronomy, for the Lord your God shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. God cannot be bribed, so he looks out for the vulnerable. And he wants his people's lives to reflect his character. So when God's people rebel against him, when they abandon God's ways, justice is perverted. The poor, those who can't pay a bribe, suffer. It's no different in the modern world. Bribery and corruption devastate not the rich, but the poor. When we tolerate injustice and abuses of power, the brunt of the burden is borne by the vulnerable. When we abandon God's ways, we rebel against the one who cares for widows and orphans. We go our own way, and it's the vulnerable who suffer. So Judah's rebellion against God is is bad news. It's self-destructive for the nation. It's particularly devastating for the vulnerable. And thirdly, it's destroying their relationship with God. Look at verse 21. God laments here. Uh, We so often lament over suffering. God laments over sin. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. Uh, 
She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Jerusalem was once a faithful city, loyal to God. But now they're, they're unfaithful. They're cheating on God with other gods. It's, it's provocative language here. It's, it wants to get its point across. If this description scandalizes you, it's because it's meant to. Judah's sin and rebellion is scandalous. In verse 29, they've delighted in sacred oaks. They've chosen gardens. Both their, their hearts and their minds, they've delighted, they've chosen. Their hearts and their minds are devoted to worshipping trees and plants. They're following fertility cults. They're worshipping the creation rather than their creator, the Lord, their God. Instead of loving and worshipping the one true God, They've given their hearts to other gods, false gods, who are not true gods at all. But God wants their hearts. And so their rebellion is destroying their relationship with him. I find the, the breadth of God's complaints here fascinating. We think of issues like injustice and oppression as concerns of the secular left in our society. And we think of issues like idolatry and religious purity as uh, issues that conservatives and the religious right are concerned about. But actually, God cares about both here. He won't tolerate injustice to the vulnerable, nor will he tolerate us worshipping other gods. He cares for justice and truth. He transcends the petty lines we draw. Because he wants our hearts and our lives. So where are we? Jerusalem, God's own city, are in rebellion against him. It's destroying themselves. It's devastating the vulnerable. It's destroying their relationship with God. But God loves them. He wants them back. He wants Jerusalem to be the city where justice and righteousness reign, not murderers and thieves. God wants to see Jerusalem flourish and prosper. He wants to see widows and orphans cared for and included. He wants his faithful city to delight in love for him and in his love for them. But instead they're delighting in sacred trees that wither. God has a beautiful vision for his city, but it's a pipe dream in the 8th century BC. So what can God do? How can he restore his city and make it that faithful city where justice and righteousness reign? How can he win back his rebellious people? This is the question that motivates Isaiah. It motivates his, his whole message in a sense. It's the tale of two cities, a city in rebellion against God and the faithful city of righteousness promised by God. How will God transform the rebellious city into the faithful city? Well, there are two answers that we might give today. If you're more traditional in your views, you might say that the people need to become more religious. And if you're more progressive, you might say, well, they need to become more spiritual. 
Well, let's look at being religious first. If people are being immoral and running away from God, then becoming more religious should make them better people. There's actually research to support this conclusion. Uh, One example from North America suggests that religious attenders volunteer twice as much as others and donate 3.5 times as much money each year. You can read about this in books like The Character Gap by Christian Miller or Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin who make this point. So maybe Judah needs to become more religious. Get along to the temple, offer more sacrifices, say more prayers. But if we think that, we're wrong. God's solution is not for people to become more religious. Because look at what he thinks of their religion in verse 11. It is scathing. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Everything they're doing for God, all these offerings designed to please him, they're meaningless, pointless. God takes no pleasure in them at all. In fact, it's worse. Verse 13, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. God is sick and tired of their religion. He hates it. It's a burden to him. I have memories of church as a child. I'm sitting there in the middle of a very uh, formal and solemn occasion. I don't really get what's going on, but I'm looking at the order of service, desperately wishing that the choir would sing faster, the preacher would just stop. You get me? I'm wishing it would all be over so I can escape my boredom and get out of there. Because it means nothing to me. Church is meaningless if your heart is not engaged with God. Church is a burden if your heart is not engaged with God. And God says the same is true for him. It's a burden for him too if our heart is not engaged. He's not impressed by religious activity. As he says, religion is meaningless. It's a waste of time if you've got blood on your hands. If you're taking bribes, if you're oppressing the poor, if you tolerate violence and injustice, if your religion says one thing and your life another, God can see right through. To put it in our context, uh, when we leave our faith at church on a Sunday... And don't follow Jesus' ways at work on Monday. God sees right through us. He's not impressed because, as we saw before, when we don't follow God's ways, the vulnerable suffer. I find it so easy to, to cut corners or let something slide that smells a bit dodgy. Especially if everyone else is doing it. It's so easy. But when I do that, I'm, I'm rebelling against God. And it's self-destructive, and the vulnerable suffer, 
and it destroys my relationship with him. And friends, my religious observance doesn't fix it. In fact, doing all that stuff undermines my religion. It's the same whether we're at school or at uni or at home or in the workplace. If we're not consistent, if we don't follow God's ways, God sees right through us. This hypocrisy is so bad in Judah that God won't even listen to their prayers. That's how bad this is. Imagine that. Their relationship with God is so broken, he won't even listen to their prayers, he says. So religion is not the answer. When we rebel against God and break our relationship with him, religion won't fix it. Well, what about spirituality? It's not about the institution and the rituals. It's about being authentic and engaging with the sacred. Will, will spirituality restore God's people? We know from verse 29, some people are delighting, are delighting in sacred oaks, choosing gardens. These sound like spiritual options, getting in touch with nature, finding the sacred in the everyday. But God has a warning for these ancient spirituals. He says their spirituality is a dead end. It leads only to shame and disgrace. They will wither and dry out like the plants they worship. Eventually go up in flames in verse 30 and 31. No, a a vague spirituality that seeks God in all the places he hasn't revealed himself. This won't repair our relationship with him. It doesn't matter how authentic it is. God wants us to find him. He's revealed himself to us through the scriptures, through his son. But if we deliberately look for him everywhere else, that's not going to help our relationship with him. No, our religion and our spirituality are not the answer. So what's God's solution? What's he going to do with this problem of his rebellious children? His people are rebelling against him. They're destroying themselves. They're destroying the vulnerable. They're destroying their relationship with him. This is not what God wants for his people. It's not what he wants for his whole creation. We see here, we just get some little hints in chapter one that God's solution is two-pronged. We're going to see it unfold through the rest of Isaiah. He judges to purify and he restores through repentance. Judgment to purify, restoration through repentance. I'm not going to say heaps about these today, just a brief sketch. The rest of Isaiah is going to really colour in the picture for us. But essentially, God will judge his people in order to purify them. He will vent his anger to refine his people. In verse 25, he says, I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. God will remove the rebellious rulers. It's it's an image of, of refining metal, burning off the impurities. He'll express his anger and vengeance against his people for all their injustice and evil and unfaithfulness. It is a terrifying prospect. 
fire, devastation, suffering and death. And despite these warnings from Isaiah, this will become the reality for Judah. Friends, part of God's response to injustice and evil in the world is to judge the world, to to hold people accountable for their wickedness. But it's not the full story. Because God's judgment is aimed at restoration. Look how he continues in verse 26 and verse 27. After he has removed the rebellious leaders, he says, I will restore your leaders as in days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. God's future for his city is not destruction, but restoration. God's future for his people is not destruction, but restoration. God's future for you and me, if we're penitent and turn back to him, turning back with our whole heart and our whole lives, is not destruction, but restoration. Because here's what God will do. This is the, the heart of his solution. In verse 18, come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. God will wash his people clean. We're we're stained by sin, like you're you're picking blackberries and the juice stains your hands and your mouth and your, your fingers and your clothes. It's all over us. But God washes us clean. When his people repent and turn back to him, he will wash them clean. He restores through repentance. Isaiah and the people of Judah don't yet know how God will do this. Friends, we do. We do. We know that Jesus came to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and wash our bodies with pure water, in the words of the book of Hebrews. He has washed us through his blood shed on the cross. When we repent of our sin, our evil and injustice and turn back to God wholeheartedly, we are washed clean. All the stain and shame and stigma is removed. So our choice is the same as theirs. Will we turn back and trust him? God has called out the problem. His people are rebelling against him. They're destroying themselves, devastating the vulnerable. They're destroying their relationship with him. These evils remain with us 27 centuries later. But God's solution still stands as well. His rebellious city will fall to his judgment, but those who repent will stand because he has washed them clean in the blood of Christ.
Let's pray that God would help us to live the transformed lives he calls us to. God, our Father, we are sorry for the ways in which we rebel against you. For where we perpetrate injustice, accept unrighteousness and oppression. Father, would you cleanse us and wash us? We thank you so much for what Jesus has done for us. Please help us to live faithful lives to you, wholeheartedly committed to you. Make our lives lives of integrity. Would you build your faithful city, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.